I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, the last two verses of Matthew 28, which is called the Great Commission. A very popular segment of Scripture in which Jesus gave us instruction as to what he wants us to do as his disciples or to become a disciple or as a part of discipleship. He said in verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Three things he said here. He said, go. He said, make. And make by teaching. And so what we are after as Christians with regard to these two verses of Scripture and this subject, our title is for those who want to be a disciple. Not everybody apparently does, but for those who do, we want to tell you what is required because that's what we're about. We're go. Make by teaching disciples unto Jesus Christ. And how do you know they are? They will observe whatever he has said because somebody will have pointed that out to you, showed you this is the biblical way to live. This is the right biblical choice that we should make regarding. And that's the choice you make. And by choices, you locate yourself. And as in life with Spiritual choices, as with non-spiritual choices, there are consequences to good choices, and there are consequences to bad choices. And the good choice here is to give the more earnest heed to what the Lord has said, to be a disciple. The word disciple means a follower. Some would say it's a pupil, one who listens to the one they're following in order to follow the way he leads. And in following, you become like the teacher. We are to grow up into him in all things. But we cannot do that unless somebody tells us what those all things are. And they're quite demanding so that most people are so rooted in the world, they can't let go of it to become. And the fact of it is that Christianity is a real challenge. True Christianity or Discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, is a tremendous challenge. One that's not met by most Christians. Not some, but most. Because it seems to be too hard. It seems to be too much, too difficult. It's not understanding where we are and how weak and how unable we are in coping with life, let alone become like all of that. And so preachers through the years have watered this whole thing down, modified it, settled it down to where it really means nothing so that when we hear it, we let it go in one ear and right out the other. Discipleship is costly. It'll cost you everything. We begin with this. This is the way you become a disciple. John 8, 31 and 32 said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And the word continue means continue. It means to stay with it, follow on with it. Let that be the way you live. Don't come and hear it and not do it because you deceive yourself when you do that. But you hear it, you lay hands on it, you make a decision to go this way. 
And your life will show whether you have or not as you live. But this is what he said. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And then he said, and you shall know the truth. And he said, and the truth will make you free. Which indicates that we're not really free as evidenced by the things that hold us back. The things that hold us down. The things that grieve us spiritually. The demands that he makes in our Oh, God, we have to go that way. And a lot of people don't want to hear that, so they go somewhere else. That's their choice. I mean, we all live by choices. But the way that God is going to deal with us is to liberate us, because that's what the Word does. The second thing that we said about discipleship is in Luke, and you can turn to Luke, Luke chapter 14, where Jesus said in verse 26, a very difficult verse, he said, if you want to be my disciple, it will be required of you that you hate your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, even your own life, and follow after him. Verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That's quite a signpost along the Christian way because our English understanding of hate means to despise something despicable, something you loathe, like Brussels sprouts, <laughs> something you just don't want any part of. Well, it's really not saying it like that. And when it comes to whether you're going to be loyal to your family at the expense of doing something what Jesus wants, you have to hate the alternative. There has to be something in you that says, no turning back, no turning back. So secondly, Jesus requires loyalty to him and his word. Total loyalty. It's like the first commandment. There'll be no other gods before you. There is nothing else in your life that is supremely important to you that you must follow and do what it said. If Jesus is not first, he is not at all. Amen. And a third thing in Luke, the next verse, 14, verse 27... He said, whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now you think about the setting here. Great crowds, verse 25, great multitudes. How many is that? I don't know, but it was a bunch. Great multitudes followed him wherever he went. When he had it, maybe one of his largest crowds ever. This is what he said. This was his message. So unlike what would be said today about, boy, let's make something out of all of this. Let's organize this. And every time man in history, in church history, every time man has organized a movement of God, the movement stopped. You may have had the residue of the movement might have been a denominational system. You might have had a Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, or a charismatic assembly of some sort. But when you begin to organize it, and begin to make it the way you want it and fix things so that everybody's happy with it and they get it their way, it dies. And so I'm sure a lot of people today would look at this and say, well, what a chance to have the biggest church, the mega church of Jerusalem. And Jesus said, if you want to come after me, verse 26 and verse 27, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, be a disciple, this is how you do it. 
And he said, if you don't want to bear your cross every day and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. See, denying yourself. And Luke 9, 23 says, he has these words, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily. And he has this cross thing to it. And a cross was made for death. A cross was designed for somebody to die on. Now, we stick them on top of churches and hang them around our neck. And the Catholics still have Jesus hanging on it because he's still dead. But the fact is that a cross was not a fun thing. It was not a cute thing. It was not a kind of thing that, yeah, isn't that cool? It wasn't anything like that. A cross was a place where a curse was fulfilled, the curse of the cross. It was a place of agony and death. I don't know how long Jesus hung on a cross. They say six or seven hours, five to seven hours, hanging there. If he pushes up, the spike in his feet was agonizing. If he tried to pull himself up, he was pulling against his own flesh. His back was beaten to shreds. His hair was pulled out of his face. His eyes were probably blue. Isaiah speaks of him in his time and says his visage was so marred that we couldn't recognize him. That was what it was like, and there was no relief. There was no relief for hour after hour after hour until finally he died. And the greatest thing that's ever happened to you and me was that he died. But something even greater than that happened later on when God raised him from the dead, which verified his life. God wouldn't raise a sinner. God wouldn't raise a half-right man or an almost-right or a noble man. But he had to be a sinless man. But he was because he was called the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. His life was so perfect that he could not remain dead. God raised him from the dead. And as a result, salvation is offered to sinners like us, that we can be saved. But the conditions that are required of a saved man are the conditions of discipleship. You cannot escape this. I don't care where you go, who you listen to. And I don't ask you to believe anything I say. You search the scriptures. You got a Bible. If you want to follow Jesus and live a saved life, you must live the life of a disciple. You got to continue in his word. You got to put him first. Your loyalty and devotion is entirely to him. You got to take up your cross every day. When the conflict between you and him arises, you put to death your side. He is altogether right. You're altogether wrong when you don't agree. He is like that. John the Baptist said he must increase I must decrease. That's death. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's the place of victory because the weakness is gone. When the devil knocks on the door where Jesus is Lord, what can he do? Nothing. You have overcome the world. He said that in John 16, 33. He said, I have overcome the world. I want that same life to manifest itself in us. So where he has no place in us, as Jesus said in John 14. Now, in verse 33, our next verse, we started last week, another requirement in the same section of Scripture. and said, Whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, cannot be my disciple. Now, we started there last week. That's sort of an unsettling thought in this day of materialism 
getting and having the dream, the education to have and to be in the best rates and the best opportunities and all these things that, that have to do with having and doing and possessing. So the question is asked, well, then does it mean here in John 14, 33 that it's wrong for Christians to have possessions? Are we as Christians, when we come to this verse of Scripture in our Christian life, are we then to sell everything we have, give away whatever we've worked hard to get or what we've inherited from our parents or somehow come into the possession of, are we to give it all away? Are we to be poor? The Bible speaks many verses about how God blesses and honors the poor. The Bible has quite a few things to say about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. So maybe he is saying that we should never have any riches, not have any materialism, no material goods, and we should all be poor. But actually it doesn't say that. But what it is saying is that if something you own possesses you, you got to forsake it. Because it will keep you from serving God because you cannot let go of it. And I think we defined it last week by saying that forsaking all means that when called upon by God to walk away from something, give away something, or divorce yourself, or separate yourself from something, or leave something behind, you're willing to do this for Jesus' sake without grief, and do it lovingly. You're willing to walk away from it because if you don't, it'll be one of those things, the way that leads to life is narrow and few there be that enter. It's so narrow that only you can get through it, not all the things you think you're going to take to heaven. But this is quite a challenge because it goes back to that business of denying yourself. And self-denial, it really has both of those. But to deny self is to deny me. I work my whole life to be me. The whole educational system and all the things that were promoted in my life were to make me all that I can be. I think the military, be all that you can be. Well, that's not wrong in a spiritual sense. That's really right. But in the worldly sense, when I want to be me and I want to have praise and I want to be noticed and I want to be admired and yes, and I want to have things and luxury and ease and travel and do and go and be and have. All of these things corrupt you too because you begin to think more highly of yourself than you ought to and you can't humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You couldn't join a church like this out here in this Dumpy little old building on the corner of town. Been here for 20 years. We spend enough in rent to buy this whole lot. Figured it up the other day. Who would want to be a part of this? We don't even have an organization here. We don't have a system. We just sing too loud, preach too long, make too much noise. I mean, this is not a very noble place to be. We're not very sophisticated. <laughs> Thank God. We're not highly thought of by anybody. Nobody's looking to be a part of this. And if you thought you were somebody important in the community, it'd best be that you not be identified with this place either because what would people think? 
See, that's the kind of thing that will keep you, if this was the right place, if it was. That's the kind of thing that would keep you from being what God wants you to be or from bringing you from where you are to where he wants you to be. It doesn't mean you have to give up all your riches and all your possessions. First Timothy 6, 17, at the end of the verse, says that God has given us richly all things to enjoy. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, which he bore on the cross, may be rich. A rich has various definitions with various people. Rich doesn't necessarily mean you have vast amounts of anything. Rich is more than enough. There's three levels of life. There's poverty, necessity, and abundance. When you have poverty, you're going to go shopping to the grocery store. You need $20 worth of groceries. You've got $10. That's poverty. Sufficiency or necessity means you go to the grocery store to buy $20 worth. You've got $20. Abundance means you go to the store to buy $20 worth of groceries. You've got $30 in your pocket. You have extra. And with that, you can either be blessed, bless others. You can do well, or you can enjoy life. Whatever you want to do, it's your choice. But it doesn't mean we have to give everything away. We don't have to walk away from everything that we own. When God gives us, as I said richly, all things to enjoy, he means just that. You can enjoy it. As long as it doesn't own you, you can own it. And when God asks you to walk away from it, you have to walk away from it. What if you had to walk away from your house and your home? Could you do that? Hmm. What if you had to walk away from the new car? You had insurance on your house, you say, and, and a tree fell on your house and the rains came. Well, you have tree insurance, but not water insurance or whatever you want to call that. And so your home is destroyed. Now, nobody would take that lightly. I wouldn't think, oh, praise the Lord, that's okay. But I can say this. If I'm trusting God, things that happen in my life, are I'm trusting that God's behind it and in front of it and behind it. Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vine, the yield of the olives should fail, there be no herd in the stall, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. That's the man who can handle possessions because if he lost it all, he doesn't weep and give up and quit. It's the rich young ruler type. It's those who are possessed by their possessions. When Jesus said, one thing thou lackest, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor, come and follow me, he went away sorrowful, the Bible said, because he had great possessions. Like a lot of people today who are wealthy, not all, but some. I've met a lot of wealthy people who are very generous. But there are a lot of wealthy people who are greedy and are stingy or are tight. They never give. They'd be embarrassed to know when one day they will be when God points it out because God's keeping records of how much of all that they had that they gave back to the Lord in appreciation and thanksgiving. That's hard to do for a lot of people. You worked all day for that kind of money, and why would you want to give? Well, church doesn't need it. They'll probably just spend it on something else or somebody steal it. And people are so afraid they're going to lose something. Well, that's the one he's talking to. You've got to be willing to forsake it all. Doesn't he say in 1 Chronicles 29 that everything belongs to God? 
David said, Lord, who am I and who are these, my people, that we are able to offer such abundance to build a temple? He said, it's all yours. Everything we have came from you. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he said, it is God who gives power to make wealth. It was Zacchaeus, a rich young ruler. He didn't have to give up everything, but he was willing to give up a lot of stuff he had taken wrong and four times as much. Jesus said, salvation has come to your house. It's not wrong to have things. It's wrong for things to have you to where there is a dread, a cold sweat dread of having to let go of it and not having it anymore. Forsaking all means you're willing to give it up. Walk away from it and do it lovingly. Just turn your back and walk away if you have to. There may come a day you may have to do that. I don't know the details about that. That's just an idea. But things may come. Now, today, if you're a disciple, are you willing to forsake the things you have bonded with and the things you have affections for? Now, we said last week about your career and you might went to college to be a, a doctor, a lawyer, or an Indian chief, uh, whatever you studied in school to be. And yet, when God saves you, God called you out of darkness in the marvelous light. What a wonderful experience. And he saved you. Let's use missionary work because that's pretty current. To go to some place in this world where you'll never be rewarded, never get something back for what you're giving... That's what love is anyway. And where you're going to dedicate your life to helping a people that you've never seen, can't understand, and probably won't appreciate much what you've done, but God put that in your heart. And here you are, just graduated, or five years ago you graduated, you got a big law practice, big medical practice, CEO of some big corporate. Would you give it all up to do what God said? Could you walk away from $500,000 a year income to be a nobody, to go where God would send you and just become nothing in the eyes of the world? Would you do that? Now, why would it get so quiet all of a sudden? Could God do that? Could God take somebody who was well-to-do and tell them to get rid of what you got, and I want you to put it somewhere else, and then I want you to go there and be a part of it? some dark place in the world. And if I ever bring you back here, you won't even have a place to stay. Could he do that? He could. He could. How often he does, I don't know, because I don't know how many people are willing to forsake what they have, to walk away from the things that they have. I don't know if you've ever been to a garden in your life. I don't know if you've ever experienced any of you. I don't know. Have you ever had a garden of Gethsemane in your life where God's dealing with you about something and, boy, I don't know about this? Jesus did. It was tough. The tension in his life in that garden was so heavy. Maybe it was blood pressure. Maybe it was something like that. But the blood burst out of his skin, mingled with sweat, and fell to the ground in the garden. The Gospels describe him in the garden as in being in a frenzy and extremely tense. This is the, the Savior wrestling with the decision. And when he made that decision, he was calm from then on. 
Didn't we read in Hebrews chapter 12? Something about sin that does so easily beset us? Turn over to Hebrews 12 with regards to that garden experience and what happened there. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, verse 1, let us lay aside every weight. Lay aside has to do with what we're talking about, forsaking. Let us get rid of every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and that's the sin of not enduring. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now notice verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin like he did. He was a pattern, a noble pattern. And here we are as disciples. I want to go to heaven. All the songs I sing about, sing them over again to me, the joy of the Lord, amazing grace. All the songs that we sing, let the realness of that envelop me. Let it gain a hold of my heart and my thinking so that my great desire in this life is not to have and to be, but to become. And let God add to that all he wants to. May I remind you of Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat read about the first ways of his father David. Second Chronicles 17, he read about how God dealt with David. This is what David did. This is the kind of life he lived. And Jehoshaphat read that. You know, the Lord opened his heart and his mind to see it. And look how God blessed David. Everything that he did, everything that he put his hand to worked. So Jehoshaphat said, I want you all to teach all this nation, the southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. I want you to teach all this nation that I'm king over these things. And the Bible said, as they taught David's enemies, the Philistines, they were having Bible studies. May I say they were having church. And while they were having church, the Philistines came from Louisville and they came from Lexington and wherever they came from, camels down the road, sheep and oxen, donkeys, wagons full of stuff. They didn't know why they were bringing it. Jehoshaphat didn't know why they were bringing it, but God caused it. He said the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. And as while Jehoshaphat's seeking the kingdom, God was seeking Jehoshaphat. And he blessed him. He had a wonderful amount of blessing. But he never sought to get blessings. Blessings sought him. Well, that's a pattern. But at the same time, if God wants it all, you give it all. You had nothing when you came to him, and when you leave this world, you'll have nothing. And when you meet him, you'll have it all again. You've got to have your heart and your attitude right about things. You've got to be willing to forsake all and leave all these things behind. You can't grieve over the loss of things. A woman can be so attached to her house and have worked very hard, and they do, to make it just ding, really right. And one day, 
her neighbor comes over with three kids and it's raining. And she just waxed the floor and everything and the kids are a little rowdy. Not like her kids, because she wouldn't allow this to happen to her kids, but her kids come in and, boy, the floor is slick in that funny slide across that thing. Shoo, you know, just, and so she's quite upset with that. Well, I can understand why she would be. But sometimes, maybe, now think of this. Is it possible that God could allow a rainy day and rowdy kids to come to your house? Just so you can what? So she can what? Die? She's dying all right. She's dying because she did a lot of work. This isn't right. And so it's over and they're gone and she's got all that to do again. So her husband comes home and man, he's got him a bear in the house. And what's the matter with you? Well, how would you feel? Somebody go, you got a bear? It wouldn't bother me. Until they got in his car. Just waxed it and shined it and shampooed it. Smell like new money. And I just really nice in there. And a bunch of neighbor kids need to ride the town. Their car wouldn't work. You come over and get us. Raining. It's raining out a little mud. Man, I gotta go up that drive. I'm gonna get mud on my wheels. I'll be. So you go get them because you're a Christian. Somebody asks something of you and want to give it to them. They go over and get in your car. And guess what? Little kids get in the back seat with their feet on the seats. These are not leather seats. You're not quite there yet, but these are cloth seats. Whoo, they hold the stain a little longer. And by the time you get back home, now the wife's got a bear in the house. He is smoking out his ears. Oh, I'm telling you, kid, I'd wear them. I'd beat this. I'd, I'd, why, yeah. What's the matter? What's, whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out. Time out there. What in the world's wrong, Hercules? She said, well, I went over there and all this and all rubbers over all over my car. I got, look, look at my car. She said, it doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> I'm not saying that you don't have a, a complaint, but friends, let me tell you something. As bad as that may be for somebody, I like to keep clean car too. But as bad as that is, sometimes I see it as a test. Are you willing to forsake that attitude? You knew when they opened the door and those kids come running towards your car, you knew exactly what you're about to get. You didn't lock the doors. <laughs> they got in and enjoyed your new car. They're thankful you took them to wherever you took them. And you're having a really bad day now. Let me tell you something. I believe in a small way, and this is one little example here, I think you need to give up that attitude of grief and meanness when something like that happens because God will allow that to happen. I like to keep a clean car as much as anybody that keeps a clean car. But sometimes things happen and you just have to say, praise the Lord. Just bought a brand new suit. I didn't. I'm making this. Just, I'm preaching. Just bought a brand new suit. Paid more than $100 for it, so you know it was a good one. We're the rich people laughing at, but anyway, uh, got this pretty nice suit. Fits me like it's supposed to. Got a real pretty tie. I'm going to wear it to church. And I wear it to church, and I met it to church with my new grandbaby. 
Alléluia, comme le papa. Oh. I cannot believe. I just bought this thing. My friend, why don't you just go back to the bathroom, put a lot of water on there, and do the best you can, and enjoy the service? Well, how would you feel? I've been there. Only mine wasn't a dark suit. It was kind of a light-colored suit. You go out to eat, people say, what's he wearing? You know. Well, I'm just saying, folks, that, that there are things that happen like that. You, know, you can be so attached to your car that if you go to Walmart, you know where you park? Down by the road. <laughs> Why? So nobody would dent your door. It's not wrong to have affection for things. It is wrong for things that they actually control you. Now, let me tell you something else. Negligence, now we're talking about the wax floor and the clean car. Negligence is not discipleship either. Well, you shouldn't have affection for things. Well, then leave the windows down when it's raining. They ain't got no affection for it. Rain on. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have any affection for it. Why you vacuum your carpet? You affection for it? Why would you want to clean your room? Kids see it that way. Well, you know, you have affection for it. Why would you want to paint your house? Why mow your grass? Fact of the matter is that we not only should forsake our possessiveness and a bad day result of things not going well for our possession, we should not only forsake that, but we also are good stewards of what we have. It's not wrong to wash your car and paint your house and wax your floor. It's not wrong to keep your suit coat clean. It's not wrong to do all of that. God has blessed you with whatever you have, and you take care of it. I'm different. We're all different. But I was caught one time washing my lawnmower. So I said, why are you washing, why are you washing your lawnmower? I said, my lawnmower costs more than your car. I didn't mean it to come out like that, but <laughs> at the time, <laughs> it was the truth. It was the truth. It was the truth. I still do. In fact, I wax it now. <laughs> Keep it in the garage. I haven't given it a name yet, but I mean, I, I do all that. Being unconcerned is not discipleship. Why would you ever lock the door in your car while you're shopping? Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I, I have no concern for, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, it don't matter to me if he gets broke, it's all right. No, it's not all right. It's like when I was coaching basketball. One of the kids would make a mistake, do something really dumb, throw a ball out of bounds or mess up in some way. And one of his teammates say, that's all right. I think it ain't all right. <laughs> if it's all right, let's call timeout and do it again. <laughs> let's all do that again. Let's all throw the ball out of bounds. It's all right. No, it ain't. Excuse me, no, it isn't. It's not all right. You do better than that. You're given better reasons to do better than that. Life is not a goof-off situation. Life is where you do your best. And when things don't work exactly right, you don't lose it. You don't give up, throw in the hat, and smack your kids and, and yell at everybody. That's something wrong with you. Something possesses you. Let me ask you a question.
could you forsake a dead church? Now think about it. The one I grew up in, the Christian church, disciples of Christ, they called themselves. From the earliest of my life, four years old, that was where I went to church. I grew up there in that church, all through high school, grade school. I learned all the songs, knew all the preachers, the youth fellowship, the CYO, all the summer camps. I did that. I was a part of the church. What they believed meant nothing to me. It was just where I went to church. It was just where I went. I was a good Christian church or a good Baptist or a good Methodist or a good Presbyterian. That's, that was what I was introduced to as a child. That's all I ever knew. Now, when I got older, they made me a Sunday school teacher, assistant Sunday school superintendent. How's that? My mother was the Sunday school superintendent. I was her assistant. And whatever that was, I was. Made me a Sunday school teacher. Remember the embarrassment of trying to pray, and I couldn't. I said, let's just repeat the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll go to church. What a pitiful soul I was. But one day I got saved. June 30th, 1968, I got saved. At what time? <laughs> Five minutes to 12. Jesus Christ changed me. Just like he changed anybody else of any persuasion. When he changes, he changes us all. Things turned inside out in my life. I got turned all the way around. I'll never forget it. The next day I had this deep desire to study the Bible. Never had that in my life. I had to go borrow a Bible to study. I liked that Bible. It was a Schofield Bible, so I went out and bought my own. And I would spend hours reading it, so asking questions. What does that mean? Well, why does it say that? It had a cross-reference, a center column, where a verse of Scripture would refer you to another verse of Scripture that would say something's the same. You know, I would go from one to the other, and I'd sit there, and I started taking notes. And while I'm taking notes, I got on something else. I got a, another thing up here to study. Then I began to notice... In my desire to talk about Jesus, I began to notice that very few people in the church had any discernible interest at all in Christ. And I began to ask questions, and it disturbed people that I would ask questions. I've told you before, and I'll tell it again, but while we were building a new building, we met in the fellowship hall, which was sufficient size. And I remember sitting on the right side of the building, halfway down, where I was closer to the front than halfway. One morning, the preacher was preaching real good, and I said, amen. I don't know if that's the first time in the history of the Christian church that somebody had ever said, I'm sure it wasn't, maybe in our church. I said, amen. And you would have thought, man, E.F. Hutton said something because everybody turned around, <laughs> who said that, who said that? The first time I raised my hand while I was singing as unto the Lord. And you would have thought that we have brought in abominable things into this church. All I was doing was learning and doing my best, even though I felt like the Lone Ranger. I was learning and doing what I'm learning. And I found that many of the church, the old pillars, were against it. They thought we were ruining their church and taking their church away from them by changing their church. And it was dead. And the day came I had to leave.
That's the only church I'd ever known. My daddy was a Catholic. I'd been to him a few times and did all that thumping and stuff, but I had to leave. I had nowhere to go. Didn't know where I was going. Most of you in here understand that because this church is made up of people that came from somewhere else. Very few locals here. Very few of you are Shelby Billions. Most of you came from other places. Something compelled us. There's got to be more to my life than a dead system. Now, this one can get dead, too, if you're not careful. I've got to have more. There's got to be something more. Where is it? I don't know. I've got to find it. And I moved here to Shelbyville in 1976 or 1977. And a little Bible study started. They wanted a pastor. You're looking at the wrong one if you want a pastor. And I copped out and went north. Should have gone south. Well, north isn't bad. I grew up in Indiana, so it couldn't be that bad. It's best to go north if you live in Florida. didn't need to say that, did it? But anyway, that's not true with all you Floridians out there in the world. But I had to leave. I could not live the life that I'm seeing I'm required to live around people who felt it was an antagonistic life. As I began to witness to them, they really didn't want to hear it. We don't believe that stuff. I don't want to have that stuff here. I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I spoke in new tongues. Oh, you would have thought that we have desecrated the whole system. All I'm doing is I'm walking this life and trying to live the way. I'm a different person I've ever been in my life. Everything is new and fresh. I'm looking for people of like-minded faith, and God started raising them up in our church. Finally, we all had to leave. The preacher started preaching against what we believe, singled us out. I couldn't stay there. I went to him and told him, I said, I'm going to leave, John. Well, what will people think? I said, what are they thinking now? I mean, you might as well mention my birthday Sunday morning. I wasn't mad at him. I just knew that I couldn't stay there and, and become a war with him. I had too much respect for him. He was a man that was pastor when I got saved. I'll always respect him for that. Kept me from quitting once. Called me a baby. <laughs> but anyway... Left. First Sunday morning. The first Sunday morning after I left. I'm in my 244 Harrison Street upstairs apartment. Sitting on the couch. And here come Bonnie and the kids in the living room. I'm in my... Well, I, I'm... Pajamas. I didn't think... I don't think men wear pajamas. But anyway, I, I had pajamas. And, and I was sitting there. The bell, doom, 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 you know, the church bell. She said, what are we going to do? I said, well, let me go get my ukulele, and we'll sing a song. So I went and got my uke. This is the day. And we sang a few songs, and then I decided I'd preach. My little kid's sitting here, and Bonnie's sitting here. So I went through the whole animated story about one of the Bible people. They liked it. Offering was terrible. <laughs> but <laughs> any, <laughs> I just had to throw that in. But anyway, they want to do it again next week. Well, somebody heard that we did that, so another family left. Well, can we join you? 
Uh, you want to. Next thing you know, here come, well, now, wait a minute, this is not going to work on, you know, we're going to have to do something else. And they wanted me to start a church. So I came to Shelbyville. They wanted me to start a church. I went north. I finally left north and came back to Shelbyville, started a church, or took over. All I'm saying was there was, it was necessary for me to leave something that, that was going to hinder me. I had to forsake what I'd always known, where I became saved, where the place I got saved, where I was made an elder, where I had been a leader in the church. I had to forsake all of that kind of stuff. Let me ask you a question. Could God lead you in a new direction? Are you willing to forsake the very thing that your family is going to disown you for doing if you leave it? I mean, if this is your family church, this place is so liberal, I cannot be a Christian here. I cannot believe you. I'm gone. I say, okay, you get no inheritance, you get no nothing. Well, would you still forsake it? Or are you for sale? See, forsaking all, folks, means that as you walk with the Lord, there are things you're going to have to turn your back on and walk away from. Take styles, worldly styles. Boy, you'll love this. Is there such a thing as forsaking worldly customs or ways? Can I mention dress? Now, watch it get real quiet here just a minute. Is it possible, is it possible that there are clothes and styles today that are not modest or chaste or proper or pure. Can we all agree on that? There are things that people wear that they should not wear if they are Christians. All right. Now, we'll all agree to that. Just now let's go to something else and not talk about it. But the fact of the matter is that there are worldly customs. God said, your ways are not my ways and your thoughts are not my thoughts. Remember that? So I want to know as a Christian, I want to know, am I patterning my life after the wrong people, dressing like the wrong people? I saw a preacher on the a well-known at the time, he turned out to be a fraud, but a well-known preacher on TV not too many years ago in blue jeans and sneakers with a T-shirt, tattoos, and didn't have a comb. I think the perception here is, well, we're not into all that dresses. We're not into all that kind of stuff. And yet, can you imagine a priest in the Old Testament coming out in sneakers, going into the tabernacle with sneakers on a T-shirt? Poof, there goes another priest. <laughs> there was just a certain way that God wanted his people to come before him. And there were just certain things he wanted. I mean, after all, it is God. He is watching. He does know. He does reward. The blessings are in his hand to be given it's do your best, and I don't mean overdo that, but clothing stuff. Are there swimsuits today that a Christian girl should not wear? Come on now, stay with me. Are there swimsuits that Christian girls wear that they should not wear? None of you girls would? How about the little two-piece thingies? 
Is that okay? I'm just asking you. I'm talking about, are you willing to forsake the trend or the style because it would not please God for you to wear that or to be looked at by the boys like that? Wow, look at her, man. Because you don't want that in your life. You don't want to be a, a lusty appearing person, so you forsake all that? Would it be all right if we said here that Christian girls should not wear that kind of stuff? Or that Christian boys would not wear Olympic racing swimsuits? Well, how about the Olympic volleyball girls? Panties and bra. That's what they wear. Maybe it's a different material. Maybe it's, I hope so. But they're out there in a little of nothing. And they fall down and twist around there. And I don't care what you think. I've been on this earth too long to know different than this. I know what people think. I know what men think. And women that wear that kind of stuff encourage that kind of thinking. And if a girl wouldn't dress like that or wear that because that would not be decent and my convictions forbid it, ho, 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 are you willing to endure that? Are you willing to forsake that? I think some of the athletic dress today or some of the stuff that people wear and a lot of things, some of the most Impressive physical people in the world are the gymnasts. That little twisting, jumping, flipping stuff that they do. A marvelous body control. But the clothes they wear are not proper. You know, I've watched that and, and I think I've made the remark to Bonnie. I said, you know, they ought to wear something else. But how about the housewife that wears leotards down at the shopping center? What's a leotard? Any of y'all know what a leotard is? <laughs> How many of you don't know what a leotard is? Well, a leotard is like pantyhose. It covers everything but skin tight, from the feet up to the waist. People used to wear those when I was in college in <laughs> modern dancing class. I had a class in modern dancing, and they would you know, <laughs> do all... No, I didn't wear leotards either. <laughs> Our teacher did, but she had a skirt over the leotards. But you could get yourself in a lot of different ways, stretching things without, you know, exposing more than should be exposed. But I, I think of some of these jeans today the girls wear that are so tight and they don't come up very high. And you got that eye looking at you and a belly button staring at y'all. Do you really think that's okay? Would you like to appear before the Lord like that? Maybe with a diamond stud in it. <laughs> Would you really like that to come before the Lord and have the Lord look at you and say, oh, that's nice. Or would he say, that's not what I've taught you. That's not the way you're... A modesty. Modesty will prevent a lot of kids from being in a lot of sporting activities. It will. But here's the question. We're talking about Jesus said, unless you're willing to forsake all. While we thought that might have been money and stuff, it wasn't. Forsaking all could be a lot of things. 
How about if you get a little older and a little dumpier, you want a little cosmetic surgery on your body? Lift. You know, you can get lift kits today for things that are sagging and not as they should be. You know, you could go in there. I could go in there if I wanted to do that. He'd say, we can get those bags off your eyes. All we do is raise these bags up and take that thing your grandkids like to flip on. We can get that thing off of there. We can pull that back, stretch that back, make you look 20 years younger. For what? Who for? Bonnie doesn't care what I look like now. She said, I see you with my heart. I got nobody to impress anymore. I'm not trying to. Boy, you look so young. Well, of course I do. I don't care about that. I don't care about being my age. It's no big deal. I'm just saying there's things you just forsake. You don't need a breast implant to glorify God. Oh, brother, did we said it. Well, you don't. You don't. All I'm saying is that there are things from your facial implants to lift kits or lifting, whatever they call that, facial lifts and, and all this other stuff. Let's call it what it is. It's flesh. It's self. It's all to be attractive to people out there. You want to notice you and look at you and admire you. You've got the pretty face, you've gifted with a nice body, and the devil wants you to make it a show. And when the preacher says you've got to forsake that, you're offended. That's what this message is about. It's about that attitude that keeps you from being willing to do what God wants. While none of us are perfect, a perfecting work is what God is doing in our hearts. Paul said in the last couple of verses of Colossians 1, he said, my desire is to present every man perfect in Christ. Here's the way, folks. Here's the word. This is what we're going by. Let me try to explain it to you. Now you got to deal with it. Now, if you're offended by the word, remember Jesus said one time, he said, are you offended by this word? John 6, he said, I don't guess so. Walk away from everything. Give up everything when it's necessary. Peter, you got a boat? Yeah, I want you to follow me. Matthew, you got a pretty good job collecting taxes? Yeah, I want you to follow me. What about my tax work? Follow me. Abraham, follow me. Where are you going? It's none of your business. You follow me. I want you. I bought you with the price. You're mine. I want to use you for my glory. Quit interfering and quit letting things get between us. If they do, put it on a cross and die, or you can't follow me and you can't be a disciple. This isn't easy. This is not an easy life. Can you forsake it all? Are you willing to forsake whatever stands between you and God, whatever gives you a bad attitude and makes you act ugly, can you forsake it? Can you turn away from it and walk away from it and say, praise the Lord? Maybe not even know where you're going. Are you willing to follow him and trust him with all of your heart and lean not to your own world-made understanding? In all your ways, acknowledge him and count on him to direct your steps. And if they lead to this or that, fine. 
My life is no longer mine. It belongs to him. I have been bought with a price. Amen. Now there's one more. Let me introduce it and then we'll close. If you'll turn to John 15, if you want to be a disciple, this also, along with the other things, is necessary. It is not an option. It is necessary. John chapter 15 and verse 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. In this way you shall demonstrate and prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that you truly are my disciples. You know what it is? Bearing fruit. That's simple. But ooh, it's loaded. It's loaded. You want to come back? It's loaded. Amen. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, this morning, we pray that you would give us a divine understanding of your way and your truth and work in us that deeper work in which we regret nothing that you say. We are grieved by nothing that you show us, but that we truly, as disciples, delight ourselves in the Lord. Most of all, Lord, as we approach the communion table this morning, may we delight in what is said here, that a life was lived in a body that was offered up to you, a living sacrifice, and yet he died and shed his blood for us. And without this, we would not be here. Heavenly Father, this is the most meaningful observation in the Christian's life. It's the bread and the cup. Help us to examine ourselves as we do to come and appreciate deeply and fully this morning what this means in Jesus' name. Amen.